I don't usually do this, but uh, there's a couple of couples here today that are special to me that uh, have impacted my own journey. One is Brian and Julie Myers in the back. He's probably hating it that I'm doing this. Go ahead, stand up. For those of you that don't know them, he was the pastor that preceded me. So... had a very significant role in shaping the church uh, to hand off to me. And so my goal is not to destroy it. My goal is to build on what he's done. So glad that you're here and back in town. It's good to see you. The second one is Bill and Kathy Ladd. Stand up. They hate this even more than the Myers do. Bill was my boss in Germany as a young missionary, retired colonel, taught me a lot about administration and things like that. I owe both of these guys a debt of gratitude and their wives. Thank you. It's especially wonderful because he had surgery and he can't talk. That means I get to talk. <laughs> Glad you're here. All right. We're, um, we are in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, several of you have commented that um, you're, you're struggling to make sense of how this all fits in. And so my advice to you is just to be patient. Just hang with us. And each week it will become a little bit clearer, I think. We called it the, um, the great reversal because God is overturning cultural values. Now, today we're going to be talking about adultery. And next week we're going to be talking about divorce. Wherever we go in the Sermon on the Mount, this is going to touch uh, your lives personally. You know, sometimes when we're talking about God, maybe we're talking about the great redemptive story of the Exodus, for example. It, it doesn't always feel as personal to us. But you can't get away from it here. The moment we talk about anger, adultery, divorce, all those things, we're talking about very personal things that have impact us as people. As that, that get, you've experienced it. Many of you have experienced these things. Some of you have experienced adultery firsthand. Either you committed it or your spouse committed it. You know what I'm talking about. Many of you have gone through divorce. And so this is important to take a look at these topics. Here's what my advice to you is, my plea to you, please don't let shame get in the way. This is not a time for rise up. I am convinced that shame is a tool of Satan, not God, because it forces you to look away. That's what happened to Adam. And so I don't want you to experience that. What I want you to do is hang in there with us week after week and listen and engage in what God is doing in our world today as expressed through the Sermon on the Mount. So just be patient. Uh, walk with us, and I think you will discover maybe the true nature of grace and redemption. With the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is taking people where they've never gone before. Okay, pause. When you look back in the first century world, the first century world was largely uh, governed by what we call a shame and honor economy, shame and honor dynamics. So the way we related to each other was based on shame and honor. That was the entire world operated that way. What that meant was we could evaluate people based on their behaviors. So we do that today, right? We kind of know who the drug addicts are. We know who the alcoholics are. It doesn't take long to look around. We can figure it out. And so something inside of us wants to categorize people and do the very thing that Jesus said not to do. I'm glad that's not me. So when we looked at the Beatitudes all summer, what we saw was, and we called it, it was the same title, The Great Reversal, as we looked in the Beatitudes, is that the world had developed this sense of, Here's, here are the, the scum of society, here are the low people, here are the values that we look down on. Okay? The poor. I'm so glad I'm not poor. 
hungry. Boy, I'm glad that's not me. And so they had very gradually developed these sense of values that the people at the top, the emperors, the kings, the wealthy people, the elite, they're thinking, boy, I'm glad that's not me. But they look down on these values. And Jesus said, no, it's these actual values at the bottom are the people that are blessed. They're the ones who experience truest faith. They're the ones who respond quickly to the gospel. And that's borne out with every mission agency around the world. When you go into a foreign country, it's the poor people who respond quickly because they're the ones who are desperate and need help. And Jesus is saying, no, those are the actual blessed ones. Those are the ones blessed by God, and those are the ones who are happy. And so Jesus is going to take them where they've never gone before. What he's doing here with the Sermon on the Mount is he's announcing the kingdom and teaching the principles of the kingdom of heaven. Just before chapter 5 and verse in chapter 4, he says, Matthew tells us, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And he starts off with the Beatitudes. That's where he begins. But he doesn't stop there. He's moving further now and deeper into the heart. So we figured out who the blessed people are. Now we're going to start exploring what's going on with those people. Jesus does something that nobody in the world had ever done. He begins to look inside the heart, the interior of the person. I am convinced that Jesus' ministry set the stage for what we think of with modern social sciences, sociology, psychology, psychiatry, because they began to look inside the person and figure out what's going on. And that's what Jesus does, which makes sense, because this is where depravity occurs, is right here. And this is where redemption has to occur, is on the inside. And so the way the world worked was very simple. You know, I don't really care if you're lusting after my wife. You just better not sleep with her. That's the way the world worked. It was based primarily on behaviors. Now, we have evidence as you work your way through the Old Testament that, that God's redemptive plan his, was to restore that and recalibrate that and correct it. So you have the psalmist. For example, David says, search my heart, O God. There's a glimpse of looking inside. But worldwide, that was not the prevailing view. It just simply wasn't. You know, if you go back to the Ten Commandments, uh, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, roughly 1500 BC, one of the things that introduce, is introduced in that is the, the morality of murder. Prior to the giving of Ten Commandments, we have no historical evidence that I know of that uh, murder was conceived of in terms of morality. It was discussed in the laws of the various nations, but more from a practical perspective. So if I murder one of your family members, yeah, we're going to have a tough time, aren't we? But we have no compunction, all of us murdering the people across the valley. It wasn't a moral issue, it was a practical issue. And so the Ten Commandments come, and all of a sudden we find morality being discussed, which is the role of the people of faith, is to bring morality and that discussion to the table for the world to think about. We should be willing to do the same in our own culture, is not be afraid to discuss morality and the principles that we hold true. They're important to us. And so Jesus comes along and he begins to turn all that on its head. So he begins by identifying that those who we refer to in the Beatitudes, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, the, those who hunger and thirst, uh, that sort of thing, those are considered often weak qualities and he's saying, no, those are the best qualities. But then he says, the very next thing is, you are the salt of the earth. So those who are part of the Beatitudes are the salt and light of the world. Salt and light to the world. We talked about that a few weeks back. This is the gospel. God is at work in the world in new and fresh ways. Now, the gospel 
appropriately so, is centered on the cross and what He's done for us. But it's far bigger than that. What happened to you individually is a little tiny speck in a much bigger world picture. As He said in Galatians 3, uh, God spoke the gospel ahead of time to Abraham that in you all the nations will be blessed. And so the really heart of the gospel is that God cares about every people, every person on the planet. But it's further than that. In Romans 8, Paul says that, um, that all of creation is waiting our redemption. You see, God made this entire creation, including us, and he cares about all of it. That's the nature of the gospel. That God is doing everything, I think, except short of violating your free will to get you to turn to him as the one true God. He cares about all of creation. And so this is a great reversal. God is doing things never seen before in the world. But he goes a little bit further. Mark talked about this a couple weeks back, but I want to read it again. Matthew five seventeen. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Is everything accomplished? No, the law is still here. One of the questions I love to ask my students, I'll read the rest of this in a second, in the classroom is, give me ad, use adjectives to describe the Mosaic law. It's harsh, it's legalistic, it's inflexible, all those things. And it's like, well, then why did the authors of the New Testament say the law is good, the law is right, the law is holy, the law is perfect? You don't find any disparaging comment against the law. They thought it was wonderful. In fact, John calls it grace. It was the grace of God. You have all these gods, and you had to guess what they wanted, and our God spoke into human history. That was grace. No wonder they were excited to try to obey the law, because our God spoke. So he goes on, If anyone, therefore, who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly, they will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. All right. As Mark said when he taught this, that presents with a tremendous conundrum. We have the law which we are expected to obey, has gone away, and yet we can't. And yet we have to have a righteousness that's perfect. It exceeds that of the Pharisees. They were the masters of keeping the law. It has to be better than that. How do these two fit together? That's a conundrum. And that's what Jesus is going to begin to address through the, through the rest of this section here. This what Jesus came to do was fulfill the Torah or the law. The Torah is, is the first five books. Or it can be specifically referring to the Mosaic law captured in Exodus and Deuteronomy. But we're talking about the first five books. That's how the, the Jewish people thought of it. He came to fulfill it, but he also came to live it out and actualize it, make it very real in our lives today. And so the law gives us a glimpse of what holiness, what holiness looks like. And holiness is the technical term for reflecting the image of God to a broken world. That's what holiness is. It's reflecting the image of God to a broken world by the way we live our lives. So what Jesus is going to do now is recalibrate our view of the law. When I was in Haiti, uh, Mark and I were there a, couple, a month ago, we met uh, Matt Ayers, who is an Old Testament guy. He's a president of... Um, 
uh, Emmaus Bible Seminary, Biblical Seminary there in Capetian, Haiti, and uh, really had a good connection. So he gave me a copy of one of his books. As we got to talking, he found out what my passions were. And he said, the giving of the Torah is the moment in which God breaks into the dying world and sets in stone his standard for human living and the posture of the heart. Okay, I listen to that sentence again. The giving of the Torah is the moment in which God breaks into the dying world and sets in stone, literally, his standard for human living in the posture of the heart. The Torah formally establishes the singular moral standard from God, given him out Sinai. God lays out to an otherwise confused and sinful people what is good and what is evil. Not only that, but he requires adherence to that standard for the covenant relationship to continue. So the Torah laid out the rules of the game, if you will. And it was called good and holy and right and joyful. I love thy law, O Lord, the psalmist says. Because... In a dark where no God spoke, our God spoke. And he said, here are the rules. They're pretty simple. You just can't keep them. That was the implication. So the law was a means by which we expressed holiness. The way we demonstrated holiness to the world. Exodus 19, verse 5 Okay, now they're standing at Mount Sinai. They've only been out of Egypt about three months. They haven't, uh, they haven't sinned yet and the wanderings haven't started. They're at the very beginning of their journey and this is what God says to the nation at Mount Sinai. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant or my commands, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. You see the, you see the reciprocal relationship there? If you obey me fully. Although the whole world is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. That's their marching orders before they're given the law. This is the introduction to all of the Old Testament. Right here. They will be a holy people, a kingdom of priests. The moment they're told that they're priests, what does a priest do? A priest mediates on behalf of someone else to a god. That's what a priest does. A priest does three things. Brings God to the people, brings the people to God, and blesses the people. Those are the three requirements in the Old Testament. That's what a priest does. They were to be a kingdom of priests. Who were they mediating for? The world. That's who. And how were they to do it? By becoming a holy people, and that's where the law comes in. You see... Right now, Israel looks just like Egypt. So God gives them a command. One command, and now they're one command different than Egypt. Then he gives them a second command, and now they're two commands different from Egypt. Then he gives them a third command, and now they're three commands different from Egypt and Canaan and all the other countries around them. Do you see how the the laws of God are separating them from the world? That's what makes them a holy people. That's what makes them a holy people. That's what holiness is all about. Is to be the drawing card. Or as, Matthew, uh, as Solomon said in 1 Kings 8 at the dedication of the temple. We've read it many times. As for the foreigner who does not know, your, does not know you. 
when they come to this temple, for they will indeed hear of your great name, then hear from heaven and answer their prayers so that they will know that you are the one true God. That's what the church is to be. And Peter, in 1 Peter 2, quotes Exodus 19, almost word for word. These are the marching orders of the church to live out our holiness in a way that makes sense to the world around us. The moment you start complaining, you just told the world you don't believe your own theology about complaining. Or let's go back to last week. The moment you get angry, you just told the world you don't believe your own theology about loving others. The moment you let your marriage fail, you just told the world you don't believe your own theology about marriage. Again, not trying to create shame. Walk with me through the process and learn about what God has in store, what God intends, and why these things are important. I will tell you, what we're talking about here is far more important than stage four cancer. It's that important. The Old Testament describes what transformed human behavior should look like. But it's not possible. The New Testament describes how God made it possible. That's what the New Testament tells us. That means that unless we as Christians are transformed into the image of Christ, that's what holiness is. We reflect God's very nature to a lost and broken world. We forgive when there's, we shouldn't. We love when we shouldn't. We love our enemies. We do good to those who hate us. When we reflect God's character to this broken world, the image of God, then we become a magnet to that. So unless we as Christians are experiencing that transformative process into the image of Christ, then the whole purpose of our existence is called into question. Why go to church? Just go to a civic organization down the road. Why come here? So the problem is that no one could keep the law, but our responsibility is still to, ex- to express and live out and demonstrate that holiness. That's why Peter quotes the Exodus 19 passage. These are the marching orders for the church. So why then does Jesus begin with giving us the bad news? I mean, everything in here, as we read this, you're going to find yourselves captured in every one of these. I'm sure you've all hated somebody. I'm sure you've all lusted after a woman. I have. Telling you the truth. Wish it wasn't true. But it is. So Jesus begins by giving us the bad news. He moves the discussion from behavior back into the heart. That's what he's doing. We learn from reading the Sermon on the Mount that behavior is not as important as the heart. That's what we learn. Now, don't say it's not important. It's not as important. It is in the heart where true depravity occurs. It's in the thought processes. It's in the minds. That's why we're told to transform our minds, our thinking. It occurs here. And until Jesus gets that principle established, then redemption doesn't mean very much. Because what happened on the cross is about this right here. Now, don't say that behavior is not important. Behavior is critical because behavior is what helps us establish standards within the church. But behavior is also an evidence. It's an evidence of what's going on in here. 
So some of you I've sat with over coffee and I've asked you questions. Uh, no judgment, no condemnation. Just asking you questions about your behaviors. I've sat with some of you and said, so why did you get angry? Well, because this happened. But Okay, but why did you get angry? Didn't you listen to me? I just told you this happened. I get that. But why anger? You could have got depressed. You could have laughed. You could have walked away and ignored it. But you chose anger. What was that about? That's asking the deeper question about what's going on in the heart. Or as the Proverbs say, the soul of a person are deep waters, but a good friend draws it out. And all of a sudden, when you start asking the deeper questions of what's going on in here, pretty soon you're shaking your head going, yeah, why is that? It's because you're depraved. You're very broken. You have a terminal illness called sin. Far more destructive than cancer. So behavior is simply the evidence of what's going on inside. That's the metric that we have to look at. Sadly, most churches stop at the behavior. That's where the criticism comes in, the judgment. I've experienced it many times in life in various sermons. As opposed to saying behavior is simply an evidence of what's going on at a deeper level. Let's figure that out. Let's figure that out. So what if something more wonderful is happening here than simply exposing our brokenness and our sin? I think we can all agree that we are completely depraved. Totally depraved. Every systematic theology that I know says that, and I agree with it. We're completely depraved. We're pretty broken. So then what if something more wonderful is happening here? I think Jesus is doing some very unique things here that the world had not seen. Number one is he's casting the net very wide to include everybody. We're in it together. No philosophy has done that in the world. None whatsoever. They had never thought of that in this part of the world history. He's casting the net wide to include everybody. We're in it together. We're all guilty. But second of all, he's doing something even worse. He's elevating sin to an impossible level, to a standard of perfection that you can't possibly meet. If you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery. Paul says, but don't you know that adulterers are not going to inherit the kingdom of God? Let's don't water it down. Sin is destructive. There's no other way to describe it. Jesus is raising the standard to the level of perfection. There's not a single person here that can meet it. Not one. Not the way he lays out the kingdom. This opens the door for forgiveness. You've heard Mark say, and I really like the way he says it, your view of grace is directly dependent on your view of sin. If your view of sin is small, your view of of grace is small. The more full and realistic your view of sin is, you can comprehend truth. And this opens the door for forgiveness at the cross. Because if, if in fact the standard is perfection and it is impossible for us to meet it, then we only have two options. It is hopeless or it is hopeful. And that's what the cross is all about. Don't diminish sin. I've said to the elders many times, when the Bible talks about sin, leave it there. Let's don't move it. Let's don't move that line and try to normalize it. The moment you normalize sin, it no longer needs grace. Grace and forgiveness and redemption is no longer needed. Leave it where it is. But don't be afraid to step across the line into the lives of people struggling with whatever the Bible talks about that's sin. It's really messy on that other side of the line. It's really messy. 
But that's where redemption and hope are, are created. That's where redemption is lived out on the other side of that line. Leave sin alone. Leave the boundary markers where they are. Don't move them. Let's step across the line in grace. So this opens the door, what Jesus did, for, for true forgiveness through the cross and grace through our high priest. Hebrews chapter 4 lays it out. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Therefore, be frightened of God and run away. So what Adam did. Genesis 3.10. No, what does it say? Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we'll be punished. It's not what it says. In fact, I would challenge any of you to think back on your most recent sin, which is probably in the last hour, and sins before that, and figure out where punishment happened. No, what does it say? You will receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What you find when you run to the Lord is you find forgiveness. And that's what is needed. The presumption behind it is humility, not arrogance. To say, God, I'm wrong. And I'm sorry. I would love one politician to do that. Public TV. Just one. This is a central message of communion. This is what our high priest brought us. So when the holy character of God, let me say it again, we are to be transformed into his image. When the holy character of God is seen in us as broken, fallible, redeemed people, it is obvious that something supernatural has occurred. This is the gospel. This is what represents true hope for a broken world. They can see it in us. There's no billboard out there. God is glorious. None of that. They have to look at us. This is true holiness. This is what God intended. That's why I say Jesus is recalibrating the world's perspective of holiness with the Sermon on the Mount. And he's capturing all of us in that net. Okay, so now Jesus turns to adultery, Matthew 5, 27. We don't have to say much about it. You guys already know what it is. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Don't water that down. Recognize the truth of what he's saying here. I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Wow. It uh, doesn't need much of an explanation, does it? Adultery, you guys figured it out? Every one of you has experienced it at some level. This is the seventh commandment. Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. This is the seventh commandment that he's talking about here. Further evidence of what he said that not one part of the law will disappear until all has been accomplished. This confirms his earlier statement. The righteousness of the law still means, uh, still is the means by which God displays his kingdom. 
living out that righteousness, that holiness, becoming a holy people like Jesus was, is the way by which we attract the world. What Jesus is doing here, as we said earlier, is he's moving sin from the behavior to the heart. Our inner thoughts become the basis for our outer behavior. Adultery destroys God's rich purpose for community. It does. Don't be fooled. Adultery looks very attractive. And I suspect it's quite fun and fatal. It destroys something far better, which is the nature of sin. It robs us of the deepest joy that God wanted for us. And on top of that, it pushes people away and fragments and hurts our culture. It destroys God's rich purpose of what marriage is all about. Next, we're going to talk quite a bit about marriage and why. What actually makes a marriage Christian? What actually is that? It's easy to say, well, they have Jesus at the center. Well, doesn't pagans have Jesus at the center? Isn't Jesus in their lives trying to get their attention as well? Something far deeper than that at work. So what does it mean when Jesus says, you have heard it said? This is a little clue in the ancient world. Within Judaism, the act of adultery was viewed more from the perspective of theft of a woman's property. We've talked many times that women were considered property. So adultery was flung the language in the, in the laws around the Old Testament. It was framed along the language, in the Jewish literature I mean, of theft. You're stealing something of mine that belongs to me. Jesus began to equate all that and move the discussion of adultery back into the realm of sexual relations. That this is really about intimacy with another person. So he's recalibrating this view and moving the discussion back to the moral side of the table and talking about it for what healthy sexual relationships look like while at the same time making it a hard issue. Heart issue. It is a hard issue, but making it a heart issue. It needs redemption. So what does Jesus mean when he talks about the eye and the hand? I'm just going to say a couple of things. One, number one, these are metaphors to show you how significant this, this act is. Do not, do not be deceived. It's very significant. You see, the eye is what causes us to actually begin to lust, and then we move quickly to the hand, which is what adultery is all about. I've get, gotten asked the question several times, uh, am I ever tempted as a pastor? I meet with vulnerable women all the time. That's part of a job of a pastor. A woman whose husband's cheating on her. A woman whose husband is getting a divorce. Whatever it is. I do meet with them. I have rules and protocols in place to protect that relationship. So of course I'm tempted. I understand how pastors take advantage of women. I just don't understand why. Why? You see, in order to fall, you don't wake up one day and say, I'm going to go to bed with a woman. And that happens. Well, maybe it does happen in certain places. I don't know. But that's not the normal way it works. You start by compromising one of your convictions. And then you compromise another one. Then you compromise another one. Then you compromise another one. You have to make a thousand compromises to get to that behavior. Do I cross the first compromise? Yes, I do. I'm a human. Do I cross the second one? Rarely ever. Rarely ever. I'm very transparent with my wife and with the elders. Very transparent. Nancy has all my passwords. She can check anytime she wants. I encourage her to look and read. 
I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to hurt my wife. I don't want to hurt my friends that I spend time with who don't know Christ. You have a clean pastor. You can look at all of it if you want. You can see it. So Jesus is setting up extreme measures to deal with this heinous sin, but at the same time, he's setting the foundation for forgiveness and grace. Because if you recognize how truly destructive it is, then you fall at the feet of the Lord and say, I am so sorry. I was wrong. So what does all this mean? A couple of thoughts. First of all, where do we see these destructive patterns emerging in our society? If I were to ask you, I'd come up with a long list. i just put down two or three because that's what I get paid to do. Okay? Lust. It is now the norm in our culture. It is the way of life that our culture lives on. Lust. We see it in our dress, our movies, our music, on and on and on. The world has changed very much from when I was a boy. It's now the norm in our culture. Pornography. Statistically, over half the men in any congregation are caught up in pornography. I was there once. I've been there. I know what that's like. How difficult it is. And I know some of you are because I'm in discussions with you. I appreciate the guys out there that have those, those applications on their computer and their phones. It sends me a report that says, hey, so-and-so is looking at a suspicious website. They shouldn't be there. One of the guys was buying an Igloo Playmate. And the computer recognized it and sent me and said, he's looking at suspicious websites. He's buying a Playmate. <laughs> so I sent him an email. I said, Rally, you're, you're buying Playmates now? But I appreciate the guys out there that are doing that with me or doing it with someone else. It doesn't have to be me because I have some of you that I respond to. I love that integrity of being willing to say, this is a hard battle. What about church leadership? My goodness, you don't have to look very hard, do you? Protestant clergy, we see it in sexual harassment. If you know what's happening with Willow Creek, Bill Hybels, They mishandled sexual harassment. Recently, their entire elder board and senior leadership resigned. It's a church of 60,000, which has set the norm for evangelicalism is disintegrating in free fall. I am so thankful for elders who sit me down, which they did this week, and asked me personal questions about my integrity and my holiness. And uh, I feel so protected because they do that. The The Catholic clergy, pedophilia, what's the difference? It's the same. Same sin. It's a sin of the heart regarding sexuality. We see it all around us in the church. We have something going on good here. We don't want to to lose that, do we? It's good. So we should be all committed to fidelity and integrity. So what can we do? Paul gives us a little clue. Not going to unpack it, just going to read it. 2 Corinthians 10. For though we live in the world... We do not wage war, war, uh, war, excuse me, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Do you believe that? That the Holy Spirit inside of you who raised Jesus from the dead, you have that same power working inside of you. We demolish arguments for every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive, here it is, 
every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So how do I not get down that road of 10,000 decisions? I do a very hard thing. When I'm in a counseling session or talking to somebody, I just say no. In here. Lord, help me, forgive me, and give me the strength. I'm not here for this. I'm here to help somebody. So I never get past step number two on that 10,000 or that 1,000-mile journey to adultery and sin. It's very hard to do. As we learn to deal, in this case, with adultery and lust, which is very difficult, I'll be the first to admit it, as we learn to deal with it, we reflect the kingdom in brighter and brighter ways. Um, And at the same time, we're being released from prison. Because adultery puts you right back in prison. It's like divorce, everything else. So I hope from this, what you hear is not shame and guilt. That's not the goal. The goal is to give you a way to think about what Christ is doing. He's widening the net to make all of us, all of us, and setting the standard so high that it's impossible. That means we only have one option. Grace. That's what the cross is all about. Father, thank you for being a God who has a standard. Um, Even though we can't meet it, thank you for having a standard, being a God that's consistent, a God that reaches out, a God that lives holiness in very real ways. And thank you, God, for not wiping us out when we failed, but instead provided a way through the cross and through the indwelling Holy Spirit to begin to work through these difficult areas and overcome them. Thank you for your goodness. In your son's name we pray. Amen.